Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, for those who I have not met yet, my name is Lisa Snyder. I am the Compliance Program Manager. Glad you're here. No, you had to come to one, but glad that you are here this afternoon. Um, so just a little bit, obviously you probably saw the note, um, and if you didn't, I'll tell you, we are recording this one. Um, it's not recording you sitting there, it's recording the audio and us up here. Um, but if you do ask questions and things like that, then we are going to either be report, re saying them or we'll um, get the microphone, probably we'll just be re-saying them because it's hard to navigate with this many people around to get the microphone to you. Um, that being said, we did leave this door open because you're welcome to walk through this way to leave to go do what you need to do in the midst of it, but you might want to go out that door. That's your choice. Um, and if you'll all check your phones right now, because um, we'd like to not have a whole bunch of telephones ringing, because I know that we all have phones. Some of us have two or more. So if you'll check those, that would be excellent. We'd appreciate that. So um, we have with us today Kevin Pluzak. Uh, Kevin um, and I worked together, actually, when I was the licensing person, and Kevin was um, the human rights advocate with DBHDS. He has a wide range of experience. He actually worked in residential program, um, has done in private sector, has also been, um, did therapy. He's done, he'll talk some about his experience all throughout as far as doing therapeutic foster care, um, military. He's done a little bit of everything. So um, he comes to us with a wide range of knowledge. Um, so we're glad that he can come to share with us about human rights. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you all for your time this afternoon. I realize it's not easy to free up a half a day to stop working so that you have more work to do later and more work to do when your day started. So I recognize it's not an easy task. Um, but this is a requirement that is not imposed by Loudon. It's not imposed by me. It's something that the DBHDS regulations require you to have. And in the spirit of getting everybody on the same page, they asked me to come out today and do these presentations. So thank you all for your time. Um, I am basically Echo Consulting Services. I left DBHDS in October of last year and did some other things for a little while and then decided I wanted to do my own thing. So I started a consulting company and I've been doing this since about March of this past year, or this current year. Um, when I did that, I had to stop and recognize a couple things. One, you know, people are like, well, what do you do and how long have you been in the field? So then I had to do math and I had to recognize the fact that I've worked in the field for 20 years. And then I had to stop and think, I didn't think I was old enough to work in the field 20 years. So when, when I did the math, I discovered a variety of things about myself. Um, before I get too far into that, I want to ask you a question. And this is going to be the theme that we do throughout the day, keeping things really complicated. Okay, we're going to aim for rocket science today, and that's sarcasm. I want to aim for simplicity. The more we understand why we do things, the better our outcomes are going to be. So I have a twofold question for you. Question part one is why do you work here in the Department of Mental Health, Substance Abuse, and Developmental Services? And my second question is why do you work in the field? So if you would take a moment and reflect on those, I'm going to ask you to answer those.
like that. Uh, like that. So the question of why do you work for Loudoun Mental Health, Substance Abuse and Developmental Services? I do take volunteers. Location to okay, all right. See this moment where you and I had eye contact? We were there together. Were you there with me? Please pick somebody else to answer that question. Go ahead. Why do you work here? One more person, why you work here? Nobody's making eye contact now. All the eyes are down. We're like, no. Yes, sir. You raise your hand. Positive collegial environment. Okay. Yes. So my next question is, why do you work in the field? These are the easy questions, by the way. Go ahead. Okay. Give back to. Okay. So you've been blessed with a lot and you want to give back. Okay. Is that coffee? It's by the nature of having more than others, you need to share. Why do you work in the field? So personal experience and involvement and identifying something that you love to do and then working in the early identification, early childhood. Okay, very good. Anybody else? Why do you work in the field? Because I'm darn good. That's what I just heard. So, all right. I have a lot to offer. Okay, very good. Right. Sir, why do you work in, in the field? Yes, sir. What, why do you work in the field? You need to work? You need money? Okay. But you could work anywhere. Why do you work in the job that you do? It's a convenience for you? Okay. Okay. All right. After being a beach bum for a while, I joined the military. After joining the military, I got out. And prior to joining the military, I worked public parks and recreation work. I played with kids because it was fun, and I could just do that and kick back and have a good time and still have a lot of free time to do what I wanted. So when I got out of the military, I needed a job, so I got a job working with kids, working parks and recreation in Virginia Beach. And then I moved to the Fredericksburg area, and when I moved there, I needed a job. So I grabbed the newspaper because the Internet was not the Internet at that time, and I found this place that had the word child in it. And I was like, you know what? They've got kids there. I'm going to get a job working there. Cool. So I go there, and within the first week, they're like, all right, you've got four kids. Go. 
and I'm used to 100 kids and like three adults, you know, providing activities and, and supervising them with homework and things like that. I'm like, four kids? Fantastic. And we go out there, and rocks are flying, and sticks are swinging, and spits in the air, and I'm hearing phrases that make a sailor blush, and they're all directed at me. And I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. I like this. And that was my introduction into health and human services, and that was my introduction into child and adolescent residential programming. And I quickly discovered that I liked what I was doing because, one, I was helping others, but, two, it caused me to grow as a person, and I got to see exactly what kind of person I was. And over time, that aided me in getting better at my job duties and responsibilities. So I heard a variety of different answers. Um, when I worked in child and adolescent programming, I had to do an investigation one time into a staff who was accused of neglect. And when I did that investigation, I asked the gentleman, I said, why do you work here? And he looked me in the eyes, and he said, because if I worked at Burger King, my friends would make fun of me. We finished the investigation. He was not neglectful. When I sat down to meet with him and break down the investigation with him, I said, I have some good news for you. I said, Burger King is hiring. On your way home tonight, stop by and get an application, and please don't come back. Because he was not working in that setting for the right reason. Now, I heard a variety of different reasons as to why you work in the field and why you work here. I'm going to throw out a phrase to you, and if you agree that that summarizes it, let me know. The majority of answers I heard was that I enjoy giving back and helping other people. So as a general theme, I heard a phrase of helping others. Is that accurate? I'm going to take it a step further, helping empower others. Is that reasonable? Can we all agree to that? So in essence, we work here because we like to help empower others. Now, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. If you disagree with that, please, please make that known. That's, that's not an issue. So we like to help, and my handwriting is just going to get worse as we continue. Help empower others. You're okay with that? That's not what you do? We all do on some level, whether we realize it or not. Okay. In the moment, no. But long-term to overcome that challenge, absolutely. So I'm going to agree that, you know what, doing compliance doesn't feel like I'm empowering somebody. But in the end, if I'm empowering you to be better at your job and you're empowering those to get the supports they need so they can be successful, then collectively, that's what it comes down to. But I understand the challenges of, of working in emergency, emergency services, absolutely. So, but do we agree that's a general theme? Or we would agree that that's what we desire to do on some level? Not stretching things too much? Okay. You're good with that, sir? Yes, sir. All right, very good. So we're here to help others. So far, so good. Okay. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. You're already ahead of the curve. You already answered these. Characteristics, traits about you as a professional. Identify five characteristics or traits about yourself as a professional. Yep. 
if, if lazy and, and non-qualified and not good at my job are the traits you're thinking of, then you might need to reconsider. So, I'm going to ask you for something in a minute, but I want you to pause for a minute and reflect upon yourself. Okay. Did everybody get a handout? They were up here when you signed in? No? Okay. I have a few more here if anybody needs them. Sir, I'm going to go ahead. I'm sorry. I actually put it on your seat too, didn't I? Really unthoughtful of me. Okay. So traits about yourself as a professional. Since you were gracious enough to give me a list earlier, will you please pick somebody else to give me one trait? Integrity. Yes, sir. I get lazier as my writing goes on. All right. <laughs> Flexibility. That was just so you could be at this mandatory training today, right? Say again. Reliability. I told you my handwriting gets worse. A weird one. Heard the phrase thick skin. What else? Say again. You forget? Advocate. I am so sorry. Advocate. One more. Loyal. Now, if somebody called you all of those, would you feel good about yourself? Yeah? If somebody described you like that? Now, I've already heard good things about collaborative relationships in the back of the room. Okay? But if you had to have your coworkers or your peers describe you, would they use words like this? And then my next question is, if you had to describe your coworkers or your peers, would you use words like this? Okay, all right. A little more self-reflection. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being you probably should not work here, 10 being you are amazing, wonderful, incredible. You are sitting right here. Rate yourself as an employee. On a scale of 1 to 10, rate yourself as an employee. Rate your knowledge of company policies and procedures. Rate your knowledge of the regulations and rate your peers and coworkers. Obviously the last one's generalized. I'm not going to ask you to call out what you rated yourself. Obviously we're all 10s, right?
You as an employee, raise your hand if you rated yourself as a seven or higher. Okay. Let's say that is the majority, if not all, of the room. Okay. Raise your hand if you rated yourself as an eight or higher. Okay. Fair enough. As a ten or higher. Sorry, no. Okay. <laughs> okay. That was you. Now, how many of you rated your knowledge of company policies and procedures as an eight or higher? Okay, there's a lot less hands up in the air right now. So my question is, how do you rate yourself higher than your knowledge of company policies and procedures and therefore your duties and responsibilities? It's a question to ponder. How many of you rated yourself as a seven or eight on your knowledge of the regulations that you work under, okay? okay? If you rated yourself as an employee higher than your knowledge of what you're supposed to do, that's something you need to look at and consider, okay? Knowledge of your, your peers and coworkers. Right? How many of you feel good about the folks you work with? How many of you work here because you feel good about the folks you work with? Right? That's a good thing, and that can be a rare thing. So I, I commend you for having that collaboration and that teamwork. Okay. As we ponder these things today, we're going to build on some of that. We're going to explore the basics of human rights, which is courtesy of DBHDS regulations. All right. As we go through today, we need to know a couple of things. One, there will be a break. Two, I need you to be responsible for yourself. I need you to be responsible for yourself. If I was in this room, I would be standing in that back corner, and I would be standing, and then I would be walking back and forth, and then I would probably walk out of the room, and I would come back because I don't sit well. I don't. So if you need to get up, and you need to move, and you need to do things, please do that for yourself. Be considerate of others in the room, but look out for yourself. Is that a fair request? Okay. Maximize what you need out of this. Ask questions at any point in time. You're not going to offend me. You're not going to offend me by moving around and getting up and stretching and doing those kind of things. If you're drawing pictures and doodling, it doesn't bother me at all. If you're good, I want to see it afterwards, but outside of that, we're great. Okay? And there is a test. Okay? There is a test that's required by the regulations. You're required to have a competency assessment upon hire and annually thereafter. So with that said, there's a 30-question multiple choice and true-false test. So when I'm asking you to take responsibility for yourself, I'm asking you to maximize your time while you're here to get what you need out of this so that you're not back here again. Because you don't have that much flexibility, do you? No. All right. We on the same page so far? All right, very good. How many of you ate lunch? Excellent. How many of you have about 30 minutes left of attention before that lunch kicks in? Yeah, very good. Okay. <clears throat> We're here to review regulations. Do any of you sit around and read regulations in your spare time? Because you have nothing better to do? What's your job duty? Group Home Operations Manager. Okay. When I got hired by DBHDS, I'm sitting down day one in the job in the Office of Human Rights. I'm down in Richmond. And I'm like, what's my training going to be? And they were like, do you have the regulations? I said, yes. 
and said, okay, there's your training. I wasn't excited about that, to say the least. So then I start meeting with all these advocates who have been working the same job for 30-plus years. And I'm like, tell me, what do I need to do? And they're like, read the regulations every day. We're going to talk about regulations. You just ate. You told me I might have 30 minutes of attention, and we're going to discuss regulations. It's not the most exciting topic. So if we don't look at why we are studying the regulations and it doesn't become relevant to our job duties and responsibilities, we're not going to be invested in it. So as we look at it today, move beyond the fact that we're talking about the rules and focus on the fact that we're looking at why we do what we do. With that said, we're going to review the authority of human rights regulations. We're going to identify key terms, examine legal rights, explore core categories of human rights, understand our responsibilities, and then understand the protocols you have set up here through Loudoun. The first question is, who do these regulations apply to? Who are these rights about? Anybody have an answer to that? The individuals getting services, correct. These rights are not your rights. You're not protected to them, but you're bound by them. Does that make sense? So when we talk about dignity, you don't have the right to dignity. Now, every person should be treated with dignity and respect. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But I'm saying the individuals receiving services are protected by these rights. You as the provider are not. Does that make sense to everybody? You with me on that? <clears throat> these regulations apply to all individuals receiving services who are licensed, operated, or funded by DBHDS. So if your program has a license from the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, then you, the individuals receiving services are bound to these rights. They're protected by these rights, and you're obligated to provide them and protect them and ensure them. Basically, they're designed to promote respect and human dignity and assure that services are provided consistent with sound therapeutic practice. Have any of you ever been in a situation where you've had concerns about regulations not being met? One person? Two, three, four, okay. If you see or you're concerned that regulations are not being met, Regulations are the bare minimum standard. They're not best practice. Now, they can be sound and therapeutic, but they're not best practice. So it's important to understand, if we're talking about a lack in any of the areas that we explore today, we're talking about a lack in bare minimum standards. Have anybody in this room ever worked with somebody who dare I say, is difficult or complains a lot. Anybody ever work with somebody? Yeah? I'm not talking coworkers, which is a different story altogether. How many of you have provided services to somebody that is difficult to support and that may not necessarily appreciate the efforts that you're putting into the work that you provide? Emergency services, just keep your hand up all the time. Oh, me, 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 me. Yeah, okay. Right, yes, absolutely. So you've experienced that. 
When you're providing services, you don't always get this pat on the back and thank you so much. I greatly appreciate all that you do. You do get it. It does happen sometimes. But the reality is you hear more negative than positive. When we report things, you report good things that happen or bad things that happen. Exactly. We, we report negative things. So with that said, if you've dealt with somebody who complains, what are they complaining about? Anybody? Everything? Okay. Sometimes it's everything. Right. Policies? Okay. Staff? Okay. Right. Say judges, probation officers? Okay. You know, they can't complain about the policies. They can complain about the application of the policies, just to differentiate. Okay? So, staff, that's a whole other story altogether. All right? What else? Anybody? Okay. They apply to the individuals receiving services, okay? And there's a check and balance system that is set up. DBHDS is the umbrella that oversees and licenses the mental health, substance abuse, and developmental services you provide. With that said, they use the Office of Licensing and the Office of Human Rights to ensure that you as a provider are maintaining those bare minimum standards. And that's a check and balance structure they have set up for DBHDS and for you as a provider. On the other side of that, the individual receiving services has a check and balance as well. And that is their relationship with you. And if their relationship is strained with you and they have challenges and difficulties, they have the Office of Human Rights to come in. And then the Office of Human Rights has a check and balance system where there's a local human rights committee and a state human rights committee checked to ensure that best practices are being maintained and to provide a balance and make sure the rights are protected. And that's just a basic overview of the structures that are set up. All right. Unfortunately, now we're going to get into really fun things like key terms we have to know and understand. So with that said, we're going to look at the investigating authority. That is anybody who is assigned to investigate a concern by the director. As we go through these definitions, I want to point out if they're in quotes, they are defined in the regulations. If it's underlined, it is not defined in the regulations. And that's courtesy of Webster and some other research. Preponderance of evidence. How many of you are familiar with that phrase? Okay. Help me out. Give me an example. That would be, that would be more of the beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay? Preponderance of evidence, it is more than 50% is, is what I was just given. Yes, sir. Okay. You, that's, that's a classic example right now. I have an all-day training on investigations. That's part of it. Absolutely. How many of you can remember back to the NBA finals with the New York Knicks and the Houston Rockets? How many of you care about the NBA at any level at all? And if you don't care about the NBA, and you don't care about the finals, do you remember a white Ford Bronco driving down the interstate? 
that took over all of television? What am I talking about? That's it. See, we're, we're there. We're there, right? Okay. What am I talking about? This white Ford Bronco. O.J. Simpson. Dropping dates. Check that out. <laughs> Woo! I can't touch that one. Okay. All right. O.J. Simpson was not convicted in criminal court of murder. He was not convicted. However, in a civil lawsuit, it's not reasonable doubt. It's preponderance of evidence. He lost, in theory, millions of dollars. Now, of course, once you declare bankruptcy, who knows what that looks like. But O.J. in the glove, that's what I think of when I think of preponderance of evidence. It's important to understand that because in the regulations themselves, the standard for measuring if a complaint is valid, if an allegation is founded and true, is a preponderance of evidence. It doesn't mean I have eyewitness fact that Kevin kicked Lisa. That's not what it says. Preponderance of evidence. Her word versus my word is 50-50. Preponderance of evidence is one more thing that would make her side that is unidentified, that's not documented, that happened on my shift and I know nothing about, makes me look like I did it. And the preponderance of evidence goes on her side. That big bruise in the shin was the statement. Do you see the difference? If we understand the standard by the regulations is a preponderance of evidence, then our documentation takes on a whole other level of thought process. Because we understand the importance of documenting things appropriately. The individual is the person getting services. A complaint is an allegation of a violation of the regulations or of your policies and procedures relating to the regulations. Right. Abuse. The key I want to point out with abuse, knowingly, recklessly, or intentionally. Knowingly, recklessly, or intentionally. I've done way too many investigations in my lifetime. I can't count how many I've done. Um, very few times have I done an investigation that was founded for abuse that was intentional. It does happen. But reckless, because I was in a hurry or I wasn't paying attention or I was absent-minded, I've seen those things. So it's important to recognize and differentiate that abuse can take place through recklessness. Exploitation means the misuse or misappropriation of an individual's goods or property. Basically, exploitation is you using your position to benefit from them. Does anybody ever go to the doctor here? I go to the doctor once a year for an annual exam, get my wellness exam, and go on my way. When I go see my doctor, I don't go outside afterwards and follow him, and if he's smoking a cigarette, go ask him for a cigarette. 
or he doesn't come out and ask me for one. Let's, let's, let me turn that around. He doesn't come ask me for one. If I'm a paid professional in somebody's life, and I'm asking them for a cigarette, or I'm having them take me out to lunch as I'm taking them out for an activity in the community, then I'm using my position in a means that could be considered exploitation. As simple as something like that. They're buying themselves a soda. I ask them to buy me one as well. A dollar soda from the machine? Yes. You're using your position. You're a paid professional. People you pay to be in your life don't ask you for things like that. If you think about the doctor example and you go in to see a physician and apply that to what you do in your job duties and responsibilities, those would be possibilities of exploitation. Neglect. Failure by a person or program responsible for providing services to do so. Failure by a person or program responsible for providing services to do so. So that can be an individual employee or that can be the entire program. Do we see that? How many of you read ISPs? How many of you implement ISPs? How many of you are aware of individual service plans that have aspects of it that are not being implemented right now? Failure by a person or program responsible for providing services to do so. If it's in the plan as a required support and service and we are not doing it, then the individual staff who is not doing it is potentially neglectful. And then the overall program is potentially neglectful. So it's important to understand what's in the plan identified as supports and services needs to be documented that it's being provided. If it's no longer necessary, then you need to amend the plan. Does that make sense? Otherwise, we're putting ourselves accountable and putting ourselves at risk. And more importantly, we're not empowering somebody else if we're not giving them the services and support that they need and the team identified they need. Peer-to-peer -peer aggression. Any of you ever experienced peer-to-peer -peer aggression? I don't mean you beating up your coworkers. Peer-on-peer -peer incidents, what are they? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Two individuals receiving services and, and one hits another one would be an example. So Kevin and Lisa are in the program receiving services. Kevin walks over and kicks Lisa. That is an allegation that has to be looked at of potential neglect against your programming. And what you're going to investigate in that peer-to-peer -peer incident is whether the service levels were appropriate, the plans were current, Supervision levels were right. If it said line of sight supervision and there was no staff in the room, that's a problem. If the ratios were, out of, were not in accordance with the plans, that's a problem. If your staffing pattern wasn't in accordance with what you have, that's a problem. If the staff sat back and did nothing and then Lisa jumped up and beat me down to a pulp, which is what would happen, 
and you traded money on who was going to win the fight, pick Lisa. That's what you're looking at. But the bottom line is when an incident like that happens, you have to look into it to see if there was neglect on a part of the staff or the program to allow that to happen. Now, the examples I gave probably don't happen. But if Kevin walks up and kicks Lisa at 3 o'clock today, and then tomorrow he walks up and he kicks Lisa at 3 o'clock, and he did it every other day for the last three weeks, and we haven't put different supports in place, and we haven't modified supervision levels, and we haven't looked at plans, then we are looking at being potentially neglectful because we know it's going to happen, and we continue to allow it to happen. So peer-on-peer -peer aggression. The provider, that is you all. Services means the care, treatment, training. Authorized representative. This is in the regulations. I need to point out that an authorized representative could be a guardian. An authorized representative is a substitute decision maker. Guardians are appointed by the courts. Authorized representatives that are not guardians are appointed by you as the provider. And we're going to get into that in more detail later on. This requires concerns with capacity and documented evidence that there, there is no capacity or the capacity is limited to provide consent to treatment and services or to release information. Service record means all written and electronic information. Now, these regulations were written in 2007. In 2007, there were not many electronic health records floating around. There's a lot today. However, all written and electronic information would mean that any electronic correspondence about somebody, including email, could be considered part of that service record. Go ahead. And Lisa's going to comment on that. So one of the things with that to, sorry, one of the things with that to keep in mind is that with emails and things, um, and then again, close your ears, and with chat um, and text messaging and those kind of things that are happening that we're going to be addressing soon with a policy, if you're doing those kind of things, you should be doing either a summary and putting it into electronic record um, or copy copying and pasting and putting that information in electronic record so that it would be there, um, so it would already be a part of the record. Um, and again, one of the things that was asked actually earlier um, with that is, okay, well, if I'm confirming a time um, of being somewhere and that kind of thing, does that need to be summarized? Well, I, I mean, again, I guess part of the answer would be it depends. Um, you know, uh, it would depend upon if it was something that you wanted to make sure that people knew that you did, if it was somebody who might come back later and say, you know, you didn't do that, or if it was something that was really required as part of a plan, then you would want to make sure that, yes, you documented that in the electronic record. But if it was just something of saying, hey, I'm close, um, then you might not necessarily need to go into electronic record. And again, we're going to have more information about that that's going to be coming out um, soon about exactly those things. But in the meantime, the thing to keep in mind is that the information that you're sharing with the team, if it's important enough that you're needing to share the information with the team in any form, 
um, and get that information out there, then you need to be summarizing it or cutting and pasting that information and making sure that it's getting into the individual's record so that there is lasting documentation. And all of our emails anyway fall under, you know, they could be asked for regardless if they're about the individual or something else. So makes little difference. So why do we do documentation? Cover our assets, okay, okay. Record of actual services that takes place, okay. Yes. Okay. So evidence of supports that have been in place so you can best assess what to do now and in the future. Okay. Transfer of information. It's the policy. Okay, so compliance. Okay. Why else do we do documentation? Pay the bills. Yeah, absolutely. Why else? Continuity of care. Okay. Documentation determines the future of that individual. Right? It determines what supports they need now, what supports they may be eligible for in the future. If we don't document what's really taking place, then we could be minimizing the supports and services they qualify for and then potentially not empowering them with the supports they need for success down the road. So it's important to understand the depth of what documentation really does. How many of you have played the game Jenga? No? All right. I'm going to start with you. Because you're the closest to me. Yeah? I am going to take out this block. I'm going to ask you to go next. The basic premise is you take off a block, you put it on top, perpendicular to the layer you're working on, and you cannot remove it from the top two layers. You're always pulling down from the lower levels. All right. I like to start at the bottom and make it harder for everybody else. That's kind of what I do. I'm about making things difficult. All right. And don't worry, all eyes are on you. All right. <laughs> you six. No, go ahead. As she continues with that, I want to point out some other words here. In the definitions, I have the word allegation. The term allegation is not defined in the regulations, but it's important for us to understand what an allegation is. An allegation does not require facts. It is an assertion made with little or no proof. So when we're looking at an allegation, we need to differentiate and understand it doesn't mean it's confirmed factual this happened. You nervous yet? Look at that. Look at that. The smile just got bigger. See? How many of you are involved in the administration of medications? Assist with medications, sign MARS, all that kind of fun stuff. Okay. How many of you are familiar with medication errors? Okay. How many of you are familiar with the fact that medication errors that we are responsible to administer actually have to be reported if there is multiple doses missed? And that medication error is an allegation of neglect. Did you know that? 
There's a guidance that came out in May in 2013. And that guidance is very vague and lacks punctuation. But if you look on the state website, you'll find it. And under the medication error guidance, it spells out multiple doses. Doesn't say multiple medications, it says multiple doses. In the morning, if I miss my gummy vitamin, and I miss my legal stimulants. That's multiple doses. It also doesn't spell out how long of a window in between those missed medications. So if I miss one today, and I miss one 20 days from now, is that an allegation of neglect? I don't know. It doesn't specify that. But if you ask, you're going to be told to report it. And you're going to talk later on that it's better to report than not report. It can always be filtered out through the means, through the supports you have to decide what needs to go through and what doesn't go through. But with medication errors, just because the medication error happened doesn't mean it was neglect. The peer-to-peer -peer incident where Kevin kicks Lisa and the staff aren't trading money and taking bets on who's going to win the fight, but you actually step up and you intervene and you separate us and the plans were appropriate, and the supports were appropriate. That's not neglect. If you let it happen again and again and again, it could be. But you're reporting the incident happened, you're looking into it for neglect. It doesn't mean neglect took place. When a medication error happens, it doesn't mean it was neglect. There has to be a health and safety impact that is determined to prove that it was neglect. Does that make sense to everybody? I miss my anti-seizure medication, and I'm convulsing on the floor. That's different than the multivitamin and the Adderall I didn't take this morning. We agree? Okay. You were so kind as to play Jenga. Pick somebody else to come up and do it, please. <laughs> that was pretty casual. Look over my shoulder, pointing back there. So. There's no pressure, don't worry. very silent too. Nobody's talking, adding to the suspense and the drama of what's going on. Um, blocks fall down. We applaud and, 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 give, and give, give, give an uproar of approval and we all sigh of relief that it wasn't us. I mean, no, it's, it's all good. So no. All right. While she contemplates which block to take out, we're going to go to one of the sections of human rights. How many of you have legal rights? We all do, okay, okay. What are your legal rights? No, oh, that's your Miranda rights. I've heard that before. Those are your Miranda rights, absolutely, okay. What are your legal rights? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, the Constitution protects things, right, okay. Legal rights, give me some examples. 
The right to vote. All right. Civil rights, okay. The right to bear arms. The right to get a license to drive a car. Okay. All right. All right. What else? All right. The right to vote. The right to get married. And then, therefore, the right to divorce. <laughs> right? <laughs> Goes both ways. You change your marital status. I'm not implying anything by that statement, just saying that there's a right to both those things. So. Okay. Hire a lawyer. That's part of that divorce process, right? I'm sorry, not just. Okay. All right. What are the legal rights of the folks you support? They're the same. They're the same. Who has the authority to revoke your rights? Say it again. The court. Right. If I'm a convicted felon, then I lose my right to vote. No, I, I could lose my right to bear arms depending on the circumstances too, right? But the courts are the only ones that have the authority to revoke or limit your legal rights, which means the individuals we support, we're not allowed to take away their legal rights. You told me, quite honestly, that your rights and their legal rights are the same. Agreed? So right down the middle, everything you said that applies to you applies to them. They have the right to acquire, retain, and dispose of property. Do any of you do that? Sign legal documents? How many of you have cell phones right now? How many of you have credit cards right now? Okay. If you have a credit card, that's a contract, an agreement you have, that when you make a purchase, you'll pay it back. You have the right to enter into that legally. Register and vote, change marital status, hold a professional occupational or driver's license. I want to point out, it's a right that you can obtain that. It doesn't mean you're just given that. I have the right to become a licensed physician. I have not gone to med school. I have not passed any tests. So they're not just going to give me a license that says, go be a physician, it's all good. I have a right to obtain a driver's license. If I pass the test and I maintain the law according to those things, then I can keep that. But you don't just go, oh, you're 16, here you go, go for it. It's not just given to you. You have the right to obtain it. Does that make sense? Differ differentiate that for me. Okay. Make a will, have access to attorneys. Now, leave the legal rights alone. Look at human rights. These are the core categories of human rights. And in these core categories, you're going to see there's black and there's blue on this projection. The blue are the rights the individuals have. The black and the blue are all of your responsibilities. So they have the right to dignity, the right to sound therapeutic services, the right to participate in decision-making and consent. They have the right to confidentiality. They have the right to access and amend their service records. All the things that are up here are rights and categories of rights. So in the blue, it's specific to them. The black are more things we're involved in and processes. So what do you do to assure the rights of individuals? There's two fundamental things we do. 
Anybody involved in plan development and that annual review of things? What do you do every year? You have a meeting. You're sure you do. Upon admission, what do you do? You inform them of their rights. You have them sign a piece of paper, them or their decision maker, that they acknowledge they've been given their rights and they're aware of their rights and whom they can contact if they have concerns about that. Right? That's a measure for assuring rights. They're made aware of and sign receipt of their human rights upon admission and on an annual basis. It's not just a one and done. It has to be done annually. An absence of that implies you've not kept them informed of their rights. All right. And the other thing we do is you have posters, right? How many of you can identify where a poster is, where you work right now? Yeah? And those posters should have a general summary of those rights and people to contact if they have concerns about their rights. And those posters should list somebody who works for Loudoun, and then they should list an advocate who works for the Office of Human Rights. In this case, it would be Ann Butts as your human rights advocate. Hmm? Ann Boots, pardon me. Butts again? Yeah, it just, it just, changed, it just changed to her. So there's an assurance of rights process that you have to do to ensure individuals understand and have their rights. Now, if I asked you to define the word dignity, how would you define it? So if, if you were asked to define the word dignity, what does dignity mean to you? Use of respect? Okay. What does a lack of dignity look like? Say it again? A, a lack of respect? How many of you have experienced a lack of respect in the workplace? Supporting somebody? Okay. Anybody had an individual you know, that was maybe not respectful to you? Okay. How many of you returned the favor to them? You didn't? Yes. No? You didn't? So when they tell you to go yourself, you don't say it back to them? You, you didn't say that back to them? Okay. All right. Yeah. Only in your mind? Yeah. Yeah, only in your mind, right? right. We can't do that, right? Now, because we're bound to a standard, but they're not. Now, I believe that everybody should be respected, but the bottom line is they don't have to show you respect, but we have to at all times respect them. So when I think of dignity, I think of the word respect. So as we look at everything else we're going to talk about, if you think about respect or a lack of respect, everything else will make sense. Every category can be summarized with that word respect. We okay with that? If I ask you what a lack of respect looks like, you can, you can tell me what that looks like. How many of you in the workplace have witnessed a lack of respect towards an individual getting services? Well, obviously, it wasn't you doing it because you would always, being the ultimate and the best and amazing and incredible, you would always show respect. Have you ever seen a coworker? 
show a lack of respect to somebody they were supporting? No? Okay. So if you've seen that, and I let that happen, am I respecting you? If I let disrespect continue towards an individual getting services, I'm just as much responsible for that lack of respect. Does that make sense? If the staff is yelling and they're saying some of the words that we said we're not going to say, and I let that continue and I see it happening and I don't do anything about it, I'm just as much responsible for what's taking place. Respect summarizes everything we're going to talk about. Dignity consists not in possessing honors, but in the consciousness that we deserve them. Each individual deserves honor and respect. Our job duties and responsibilities require us to provide honor and respect to those that we support. When you think of respect, you hear the phrase, the golden rule, right? What's the golden rule? Before they do it to you? Get them before they get you, right? All right. <laughs> Treat others how you want to be treated, right? So it comes down to respect. Everything we're going to look at comes down to respect. The right to exercise legal, civil, and human rights. The right to be protected from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. If I respect you, am I going to kick you? If I respect you, am I going to yell and scream at you? If I respect you, am I going to let you be neglected? If I respect you, am I going to exploit you? No. So it comes down to respect. Now, the dignity regulations have two components that we're going to look at. Dignity rights include being able to access benefits and services. Opportunities to communicate in private. Each one of you, no matter what your service setting, is responsible for ensuring these rights. The right to be called by their preferred legal name. Preferred legal name. I was involved in a situation where a gentleman decided he wanted to be called something different. He decided he wanted to be called Judas Iscariot. True. If staff called him by anything other than Judas, he would not answer them. Staff refused to do it. He filed a human rights complaint. Were his rights being violated? His legal name was not Judas Iscariot. In that particular case, that was part of a mental health disorder, that if they would have called him that, would have compounded it and fed into it and minimized the outcomes. So if my name is Kevin Paluzak Jr. and I want you to call me Junior, would that be okay? Yeah, that would be fine, right? But recognizing the difference and calling them by what they're supposed to be called by and what they want to be called by. If your name's Robert and you go by Rob or Bob, you'll be called that, right? It's that simple dignity aspect of it. Now, everything we just talked about applied to all service settings, but there's even more rights when it comes to residential settings and inpatient settings. 
How many of you work in a residential setting or inpatient setting? Okay, a handful of you here? Okay. If I'm receiving outpatient services from you, are you responsible for making sure that I have appropriate clothing and I'm dressed suitably for the weather? If I'm, if I'm receiving outpatient, I'm coming to see you once a month for therapy. Your job doesn't include making sure I'm dressed for the weather and that I have a good inventory of clothing at home, correct? Now, switch it around. I'm living in a residential system that you provide services to. And you oversee that. And you provide those supports. I have the right to sufficient and suitable clothing, and you're responsible to make sure I have it. The right to nutritionally adequate, varied, and appetizing meals means I get good food that I like. If I'm coming to see you once a month, or you're coming into my home providing support services, are you responsible for making sure I have good, healthy meals that are cooked and that are right? No. But in a residential setting, you are. Reasonable privacy, sanitary con conditions, fresh air, windows, comfortable room temperatures. My AC went out three times this summer. It's been a mild summer, and I'm thankful. But I was probably violating the rights of my kids if they were in services. The licensing would have come out and been like, hey, wait a minute. No, this isn't to that comfortable room temperature. The right to participate or refuse to participate in religious services. If I'm coming to you in an inpatient set or an outpatient setting, you're not responsible for my religious beliefs. But if I'm living in your program, you're responsible to allow me to have access to those things. The right to communicate privately. The right to have visitors. If, if you're in the middle of a therapy session and it's outpatient, do you want the door knocked on and folks coming in and having and family visits? No. So that right doesn't apply. These apply only to residential and inpatient. Can you see the difference between them? But they're all under the dignity rights. Now, access to mail and telephone and those things can be restricted if it's deemed to be clinically detrimental. And those restrictions have to be put in place, and we'll talk about restrictions later on. Yes. Yes. Um, example, uh, oversaw a behavioral health unit. Um, somebody was there, and there was a domestic violence situation. And the significant other wanted to come visit, and which was just perpetuating trauma and putting them in a, in a, in a deeper state of, of distress. So the clinicians restricted those visits until their process to be put in place. Now, they also notified the Office of Human Rights to cover themselves and to check, check and balance those, and it was documented they did that. It's a good question, and the answer to that is yes. I forgot to state the question was, are you allowed to restrict visitors? Dignity rights, quite simply, dignity is the foundation of human rights. If I respect you, everything else we're going to talk about takes care of itself. Now, who was the last person that, yes, ma'am? Yeah, yeah, the, um, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Those should be commas. So I'm sorry. Should be a comma there. 
Now, where was my last Jenga player? Pick somebody else. Okay. Without hesitation, right? Hmm, let's see. Let's go right there. Respect is the foundation of human rights. If we get that, we're going to be just fine. Dignity equals safety. If I respect you, I'm going to keep you safe. Am I jumping too far ahead? Does that make sense? Those dots connect? Guidelines for investigating allegations of abuse, neglect, and exploitation are found in the dignity section of these regulations. So the whole category about keeping somebody safe, it spells out in the dignity section of these regulations. Allegations of abuse could be physical, mental, emotional, sexual, we touched on exploitation already, and neglect would have three possible categories. The medication error we touched on, the peer-to-peer -peer that we touched on, and then basic neglect. If there's an allegation of abuse, neglect, and exploitation, the first thing you have to do by the dignity rights in the regulations is keep the individual safe. If Kevin kicks Lisa, there are three things that you can do as a provider. You can place me on administrative leave pending the outcome of an investigation. You can reassign me to another location. Or you can let me know that I can have no further contact with Lisa. The regulations provide you with three options. And you get to choose which one it is. But if you choose one that puts them at future risk, you're going to get in more trouble. Does that make sense? The first thing, yes, ma'am. No, that's the, the provider will make that decision. So, Who decides that? The provider decides. And typically that's a, a management administrative level decision or your policies dictate. It has to be reported within 24 hours. So an allegation must be reported within 24 hours. And then there's a timeline for investigations. An investigation needs to be initiated and conducted and completed within 10 working days. The outcome and then an action plan based on that investigation needs to com be completed seven working days after the investigation is complete. That's not your job duties and responsibilities, but you just need to know the timelines and the expectations are spelled out in the dignity section of the regulations. So dignity equals respect. We're good so far? Under services, the next category, you have the right to obtain services based upon sound therapeutic practice and without discrimination. Providers must comply with all federal laws, including the ADA Act. All right. Services should include comprehensive and integrated discharge planning. Failure to follow the ISP is a violation of sound therapeutic services and potential neglect. If it's in the plan, 
and they no longer need it, then we need to do an, a demonstration. Uh, speak for me. An amendment and agenda plan. All right? All documentation should be at all times authentic, accurate, complete, timely, and pertinent. I'm talking about sound therapeutic services. And under the category of sound therapeutic services, it addresses documentation. Has anybody ever looked at and seen a lack of necessary documentation in somebody's records? Okay. If there's a lack of documentation, there's a lack of sound therapeutic practices and services by these regulations. These five words, the requirements in the human rights regulations for documentation are not defined, so I borrowed from the dictionary. Authentic. Has anybody ever heard a story, hypothetically speaking, because they would never do it, where somebody rewrote a report for somebody? Or they just get information and they write up notes about services they didn't provide? I only share what's happened. That would be not authentic. Has anybody ever read documentation that wasn't accurate? Yeah? Okay. What about documentation that was not complete? It lacked information. Bless you. Has anybody ever looked at some documentation and noticed there was a lack of signatures on it? Hypothetically speaking, of course, never here, but there's a lack of signatures on it, and yet it's dated five months ago, not five days ago. Is that complete? Is that timely? If I'm doing notes three or four or five weeks from when I did it, it's not timely, and it's probably not going to be accurate because I'm reminiscing and drawing back on my memory and not writing specifically what happened at that exact moment in time. And pertinent is having clear and all the necessary information. I actually went to a home one time, and there had been a report that an individual got upset, and they ran out of the house, and they left the house, and they had to call the police. So when I arrived, I looked at the notes, and the note said, Kevin got mad, he yelled at staff, he walked out of the house, slammed the door, and left. Staff called the police. That was the end of the documentation. I show up looking at some documentation, reviewing the incident three weeks later. And for all I know, based on their documentation, Kevin is still out roaming the streets somewhere. There's nothing showing the police picked Kevin up. There's nothing showing that Kevin was returned to the program. There's nothing showing they revised the service plan to reduce the likelihood of that happening again. There's nothing showing there was an assessment done to see if Kevin was, was well and he was safe and there was any injury. There was none of that. So there's a lack of pertinent information based on that. So how are they going to prevent that incident from happening again? And how do I know they did what they should have done? That documentation or the lack thereof Bless you, with a violation of sound therapeutic practice. So documentation is unified 
with services and sound therapeutic practice in the regulations. How many of you love doing documentation? Favorite part of the job, aside from Lisa. All right. Most folks, that's like the, the aftermath, right? I love doing this, working directly with them and, and supporting them and helping them out. That's that necessary evil I have to do at the end of that shift, right? But, but the significance of that is that if we don't give ourselves credit for what we do, there's no record we did it. And I, I want to encourage you, it's not just about covering your assets. It's about getting credit for the good work you do. Because most of us do good work. There was nobody in here, based on my premonition, that rated themselves as a three as an employee. So give yourself credit for the good work you do when you're looking at documentation. All right, let's see, I had to be the Jenga person, so let me see. Come on up, my friend. All right. No hesitation, just boldly walks up. <laughs> See ya. He said, what happened? Did he knock it over? I said a round of applause, right? Appreciation, sighs of relief. It all happened. Look at that. <laughs> you were willing to pick it up, but no, that's fine. We'll get it in a few minutes. Services category, documentation that go hand in hand. Services category, and this is going to tie in with participation and preferences. So I'm going to touch on some things, and I'm going to jump back to services for a moment. All right? Participation and decision-making and consent is the next category in human rights. I have the right to participate meaningfully in decisions, regarding all aspects of services. I have the right to be accompanied by somebody I trust when developing my plan. I have the right to have a substitute decision maker or authorized representative appointed when I'm incapable of making decisions. I used to go out to programs and I would ask the question, of employees, what does human rights mean to you? So I'm going to ask that question right now. What does it mean to you? Decency? Okay. I can't argue that. What did I say the foundation of human rights is? Dignity, respect, right? Okay. So it means those things. The number one answer I got when I went to programs was, what does human rights mean to you? It means people can do whatever they want. No, they can't. Are you allowed to do whatever you want? No. There's a consequence for those things, right? And if you're married, there's even more consequences for those things. Okay? So participation, decision-making, and consent doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. Your preferences are not do whatever you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
and we're going to look at those. But safety and well-being apply to all those things, right? Okay. Participation must be documented and should include evidence of preferences. The regulations do not use the word choice. Medicaid regulations do, but the human right regulations do not. However, in order to have evidence of a preference, I have to have more than one, right? Do any of you enjoy football? Yeah. Do you have a favorite team? If your favorite team is not the Pittsburgh Steelers, you chose poorly. <laughs> I'm just, just putting that out there. I love football. My preference is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Or any team beating the Ravens is also a preference. That's like my second choice. Okay? But my point of that is there's 30-plus teams to choose from. I'm picking and demonstrating a preference to one. Preference indicates there's more than one thing to choose from. Therefore, indicates choice. Preferences in their very nature require more than one. The absence of preferences shows a lack of person-centered services. So the regulations require that we document preferences. When we document preferences, we're documenting participation. Does that make sense? The ISP might say that Kevin will engage in health and fitness activities to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And Kevin's mom and dad may be the guardians, and they may want Kevin to go to the gym. And every day on Tuesday, today's Tuesday, right? When Kevin comes home and the schedule says gym, my stomach hurts. I don't feel well. I don't want to go to the gym today. But if Kevin prefers going on a walk because he likes to go on walks and meets that same goal and he loves to see dogs and gets to see all the folks walking their dogs in the neighborhood when he does that, he's still doing that. So his preference would be to exercise that way. Does that make sense? Still doing the exact same thing. Evidence would be that the goal was to exercise and maintain a healthy lifestyle. The evidence would be the preference of going out and walking. Not the staff don't like going to the gym, so we're not going, because that's you, about the individual. The absence of preferences shows a lack of person-centered services. If we're not using person-centered practices, we're not empowering others. The strongest principle of growth lies in human choice. Now we're going to talk about consent, and then we're going to jump back to the services section I talked on a minute ago. Consent requires capacity. Consent requires capacity. In order for me to agree to treatment or services, I have to have a demonstrated capacity to do so. Preferences did not require capacity. I used the example of my mom and dad being the guardians. Me preferring walking versus going to the gym and exercising. 
okay? The preference, I get to be included in the show and demonstrate. The consent, my parents are signing off on. See the differences in those? There are two types of consent. There is consent and there is informed consent. Consent must be documented at the start of services and best practice dictates it's reviewed and updated annually. Consent does not have to be written, but it does have to be documented. What does that mean? Okay. Okay. So their ability to write does not impact that. Consent is supposed to be obtained in the means most appropriate for the individual. Verbal consent is fine. If we document verbal consent received on this day via phone call or whatever, yes, ma'am. Release of information is different. That's confidentiality. We'll cover that in a minute. This is consent to treatment and services. So, great question. The question was about releasing information and verbal consent to do that. This is about treatment and services right now. Thank you. So, it does not have to be written, but it needs to be documented. Two different things. Now, we talked about consent. We talked about preferences. Before I go too far into these, have you ever worked with and supported somebody who has a goal that they're not interested in working on? Maybe it's you're helping somebody that they self-administer medications and their goal is you come in and support and check and verify they're taking their meds. And they don't take their meds. Have you ever experienced that? Could that ever happen? Would that ever happen? Okay. What do you do in that circumstance? Can I, can I help you with this? You know, what do you do? You, you update the plan? Right. Do you stop checking? Right. If you review the goal? Right. If they're just refusing the meds, does that have a long-term impact? Yeah. So if you're not documenting that they don't want your help, yet you're still looking at it, reviewing it, and identifying risks and concerns, you could be neglectful. You can't check once and then just let it go. Does that make sense? If the preference is I don't want to do this today, I can't just leave it there forever. I have to come back to it. And if I'm not actively engaging in that goal, then you rewrite the goal and you modify it and you put something in place that is appropriate. Because if you don't do that, well, they just didn't want to do it. Well, how many of you make unhealthy life decisions? Anybody? You're looking at 10 pounds of unhealthy life decisions right here that I keep every year. And I go back to the doctor, and he says, you have those 10 pounds? I say yes. And I tell him it's quality of life versus quantity of life. That's an exchange I'll make. Do we have the right to make those decisions? Right. Do we always make good decisions about ourselves? So are the individuals we're supporting always going to make good decisions about themselves? No. But if we just stand by and let them do it and we don't revise things, we're putting ourselves at risk. Does that make sense to everybody? Preferences. Informed consent is different than consent. 
informed consent. I have two kids. When my son was six months old, he required surgery. Nothing major. He was outpatient, totally at peace about it. We drive the hour and a half to the medical facility. <clears throat> Excuse me. He is getting it. They're getting him ready at 6 o'clock in the morning. <coughs> it's 6 o'clock in the morning, and the anesthesiologist walks in. Anybody ever had a conversation with an anesthesiologist? All of a sudden, they have all these waivers they want to tell you about. And, you know, in the chance that he doesn't wake up and he doesn't survive, well, what are you talking about? This is a six-month-old kid. What do you mean? You said this was just a simple procedure. What do you mean he, in the chance he doesn't wake up? All of a sudden, that's a whole new level of thought processes for me. We should have had that conversation prior to 6 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> just sign here, please. Right, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Informed consent is awareness of the risk and the reward. And it's not just an awareness, it's an understanding of the risk and the reward. It's not just that I was informed and told about it, it's that I understood it. Those are two entirely different things. Informed consent is necessary to receive or participate in treatment that poses a greater risk of harm than ordinarily encountered. Informed consent is a higher level of consent because consenting to treatment or services is different than knowing and understanding the risks and the rewards and weighing out the pros and cons and conducting a cost-benefit analysis of the situation. Capacity is required to provide informed consent. Informed consent is always required for surgical procedures. Informed consent is always required for psychotropic medications. How many of you are involved with ECT? Any of you? No? There's even more details of what the informed consent needs to look like for electroconvulsive treatment. In the residential setting, do you administer psychotropic medications? You do? Okay. Even though you're not the one prescribing the medication, you still need to have a record of informed consent on file showing that the decision maker understands the pros and the cons and the side effects and all the possibilities. Sounds like you've worked on that. Yes. Yes. The other word is they understand it. They understand it, yes. Yes, no. Because you're not just aware of it, you understand it. Okay, absolutely. Right. So consent and informed consent are different. Informed consent is about the risk-reward. How many of you have wallets on your person right now? Pull your wallet out for me, please. If you pull your wallet out and you'd pull out your credit cards, your debit cards, and you would just pass them forward to me, I'd greatly appreciate it. <laughs> Why is that funny? Why are you laughing? <laughs> because it's not going to happen, was the point blank answer. 
why is that not going to happen? Why? You don't trust me? You say no. <laughs> You're not going to offend me. Why not? You can't give me your information. All right, I'll settle for your social security number <laughs> and your date of birth. May I get those? Why not? Because it's yours? Yeah. I just want to go to Aruba. I'm letting you know where you'll find me. Is that a big deal? Actually, I'd probably go to Europe, to be honest with you. The Swiss Alps are calling my name right now. I can hear them. So, hey, Well, you know, there you go. I need, I need to consider that. Okay. All right. Confidentiality matters to you. You just told me that. When I asked you to pass your debit and credit cards, you all basically laughed at me and laughed in my face with all due respect. Confidentiality is important to you. So do you take that same level of protection and respect towards confidentiality and apply it to the individuals you support? We should. If I respect you, I will not release confidential information about you. Right? Again, the respect thing, it corresponds. If I respect you, I'll make sure you are included and have participation in decision-making. If I respect you, I'll ensure you have sound therapeutic services. If I respect you, I'll maintain confidentiality. The right to have all information about the client remain confidential. Anybody ever heard of HIPAA? What happens with HIPAA when you violate that? So you self-report and you sit in purgatory for a while trying to figure out what's going to happen. Forever. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't wait for fax machines to be obsolete. <laughs> no, absolutely. You were going to say? You have to fill out that awful incident reporting form. I'm stepping over here now. All right. So, all right. You're liable for fines as well. Worst case scenario. Right? right. Providers must maintain the confidentiality of all information that identifies an individual. Common confidentiality mistakes or the casual conversation? Have you ever experienced that or seen that? One of my favorite moments is when I was doing therapeutic foster care. The kid moved out of my home. He was gone for years. And I'm walking across the Target one day, and I see this social worker come running over to me and give me a hug. Oh, it's so good to see you. Let me tell you about so-and-so. He's back with his dad, and he moved to Texas. And I'm like, oh, whoa, hang on a second. And I had to tell her that I didn't have the right to that information. I wanted it. I wanted to know what happened to this kid that I gave 18 months of my life to. But I didn't have the right to have that information because I was no longer supporting service in his life. Does that make sense? Casual conversation is a major concern 
the release of records, the, the accidental facts as an example. I hate to say it, social media is growing as a problem with confidentiality. Yeah. And it's coworkers venting frustration, talking about their work day on Facebook or Twitter or whatever the case may be. And they may not give Kevin the individual's name, but if you know Kevin the individual is in that house, and I know that you work there, and you know that Kevin's the one that has tendencies of being aggressive and may hit you, and you're like, man, that got hit at work today. I'm so tired of that. You're giving out partial pieces of information, and you're putting yourself at risk. I have seen way too much information, including details put out in social media. So if you all don't have a social media policy for employees, it's never a bad idea to make one. Just be aware of those common pitfalls that ha have an adverse impact. And again, think about confidentiality the same way you thought about your credit card. Have any of you ever purchased a car or a home or had to take out a loan for anything whatsoever? Okay. When you, have to get, when you get a loan... They check your credit. How many of you know your credit score right now? How many of you know what a credit score is? No. Right. I'm in the process of refinancing my house, and I get two or three phone calls almost every day, right, which feels like on one end nice customer service, and the other end feels really aggravating as all could be. All right. How many of you have gone to get a loan and been denied because of inaccurate information in your credit report? Anybody? No? Okay. Do you know that if you look at your credit report and the information is not right, you have a check and balances where you can provide a statement contrary to that and provide your side of the story? I had an incident where I was in the military, and I was sent to a civilian hospital. And the military was supposed to pay the bill, and they did not. So all of a sudden, it was on my credit report that I didn't pay a hospital bill. And it wasn't documented that the military did pay it later, but that was put on me. It was an adverse reflection of my credit. So I then had to get statements, including years after I'd been out of the military, to go back and get documentation or evidence to submit that to my credit report to show both sides of that story so that I wasn't harmed by that negative reflection of my credit. Now, I've made enough bad decisions in life that I don't, I don't need more things put on me than I already have. My point is you care about getting a car loan. You care about owning a house, right? The same way you protect your credit card when I asked you for it just now is the same way you would want your information to be accurate in your credit report. You have the right to access it and to input information and have that be a part of your record for your credit report. The individuals have the same right. Forget their credit report. It's their service record I'm talking about. They have the right to access and see their record that may be limited if it's clinically determined detrimental to them 
to have that information. If it's clinically determined detrimental to them to have that information, they need to be given a written statement letting them know they're not receiving this portion of their record with a brief explanation as to why. Each individual can challenge, correct, or explain anything in their record. Now, I asked the question earlier regarding documentation. How many of you, obviously not in your documentation, because yours is awesome, because you're the best. But how many of you have looked at documentation and seen discrepancies and seen insufficient information and questioned the accuracy of the reports? Right. If you've seen that, Think about you and your record. Would you want the right to have your side of the story put in there? So the individuals have the exact same right. They can write a statement and have that become part of their service record. So you're painting one side of the story, they're painting their side of the story. They can also request that you amend and change what's in there. And there's a process for that. But you want accurate information on your credit report they should have accurate information in their service record. We okay with that? No, I can't see there's a glare. What time is it right there? Okay. We're going to take a break until a quarter till.
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to start back up again. Because the good news is the sooner we finish, the sooner you get to leave, right? You see, you smile for the first time this afternoon. How about that? A few more thoughts on the access to service records. I pointed out that limitations may be applied for clinical reasons. It cannot be for our convenience. It cannot be to protect us. It's about protecting the individual. So it cannot be subjective because we don't feel like it. It needs to be about what's in the best interest of the individual, and that's why the information is being restricted. Okay, speaking of restriction, there's a category entitled Restrictions on Freedoms of Everyday Life. This has become a, a higher profile topic as individuals are being discharged from the training centers. There's been some, some questions and concerns that have arisen from some of that. How many of you um, in your own home Keep your cabinets locked with padlocks on them. In your own home where you live. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. How many of you have rules posted in your home that say the quiet hours in your house are from this time to this time? How many of you have rules written in your house on where you can have privacy and where you can't? Restrictions on freedoms of everyday life. People we support have the right to enjoy freedoms of everyday life consistent with their need for services, protection of themselves and others. How many of you have sensors outside your bedroom windows? That's part of your security system, maybe. But how many of you have them um, at your steps so you know when somebody goes up and down the steps? No? My wife hasn't imposed the, uh, the chimes on the windows for me yet, so I'm, I'm in good standing. All right. Freedom to move within the setting. If you have in your residential setting, not you personally, but you as a provider, you have window alarms, you have chimes that go off at somebody's bedroom door, that is a restriction on their privacy and their ability to freely move throughout the house. That's a restriction that you don't have in your own bedroom. That's a restriction on their freedom. You can have it, but it requires you to go through some processes. So you have it there because Kevin has elopement tendencies. Then it's understandable why you have it. What other things are you doing that are in place to minimize that? But that's a restriction on my privacy and my ability to move freely around the house. Okay? Freedom to communicate and meet privately. Freedom to spend money, freedom to media, freedom to keep and use personal items, to have access to recreational facilities, to make purchases, to receive services in the least restrictive setting. 
Now, I can choose to have services in a more restrictive setting than I need. But I have the right to receive services in the least restrictive setting. Oh, I'm going to have to. Absolutely. Because that statement I just made was a two-hour argument between all Office of Human Rights employees about freedom to receive services in the least restrictive setting, yet the ability to agree to more restrictions than what I need. There was an argument that said that if there's a house and the cabinets are locked and there's not free access to food and I don't need that restriction on me, that I'm not allowed to be there. That was the argument, right? That's not true. I can consent to allow that. And the argument came down to and resolved by one statement. I said marriage is a restriction of freedom of everyday life. And everybody stopped and looked at me. I said, I'm taking on freedoms and giving, I'm taking on restrictions and giving up freedoms. They might be in my best interest. I'm not saying they're not. But I'm saying I'm accepting restrictions. Right? When I'm going to be home late, I need to call in advance and make sure I've covered those bases. And it can't always be I'm stuck in traffic. There needs to be a better explanation as to why. Okay? Do you understand my point? I'm not calling marriage a, a bad thing. I'm not saying it's this ball and chain like that. Pre oh, too late. Just said that. Right? Like that previous picture. But I'm saying I can take the restrictions that go along with that voluntarily. Individuals can accept restrictions voluntarily. So I can live in a house that has locked cabinets and I can't access food. If I have a way to access food, if I ask you for it and you get it for me, that's okay. Even if there's nothing in my plan that says I need that restriction. But you cannot impose it unless it's agreed upon. Does that, does that make sense too? Okay. You cannot separate peace from freedom because no one can be at peace unless he has freedom. Restrictions on freedom of everyday life, restrictions on rights may be imposed for health, safety, or an emergency according to sound therapeutic practice. Restrictions must be explained. They must be documented at least annually, and they require consent. So if you are placing a door chime at my bedroom door, Maybe because I have a history of um, um, being sexually aggressive. So you want the staff to know when I come out of my bedroom. Making that up as an example. Okay? You can have that chime there if it's in my plan. Does that make sense? That plan requires consent. So by agreeing and consenting to the plan, I'm agreeing and consenting to the restriction. Do you, do you see that? Restrictions are taken to the BMC for review and approval. All right. Medicaid requires a specially constituted committee to review restrictions and behavior support plans. 
Typically, it's called the BMC, Behavior Management Committee. So those restrictions that I just described would have to be reviewed by a group of professionals to determine if they were appropriate and to verify there's consent and all those pieces are in place. But you can't just on your whim decide to restrict somebody's rights and freedoms. These things need to take place. This is about the individual restrictions. Now we're going to talk about collective restrictions in a minute. There's a difference between, Kevin, the sexually aggressive behaviors that you need to know when I come out of my bedroom. That applies to me personally, right? Now, let's look at program rules. Program rules apply the same way to all receiving services. And it's about maintaining a safe and orderly environment. How many of you have ever had a lot of roommates at one time? Lived in a communal setting? When I was in college, we had five guys living in one apartment. You can imagine the cleanliness standard of that, right? That was a good time. I had one roommate who loved to come home late and cook something to eat at, you know, between 10 and midnight. And then he would leave the dishes because then he'd go to bed. And then he'd go to class. And then he'd come back and drop his books and he'd go out. And then he'd come back between 10 and midnight and he would cook again. But he never did the dishes from the previous night. They were just sitting there. And we didn't have a dishwasher, so they just piled up. So we were always doing the dishes. So as a solution, we decided we were not going to do the dishes anymore, which meant we didn't have anything to cook with or eat off of. But we let them pile up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday rolls around. He goes to class. He comes back. He takes his stuff, and he goes out of town for the weekend. So he just left four other guys with nothing but dirty dishes. So we took the dishes and put them in his bed. <laughs> so then when he came back on Sunday, he was not happy. He did the dishes, and we never had that problem again. Right. I'm not saying we do that. I'm saying that in a communal setting where you have multiple people living together, you need to have structure and order and agreed upon guidelines. That's what I'm saying. So with that said, quiet hours from 10 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning would apply equally to everybody, right? I have the freedom in my own home at 2 o'clock in the morning to turn every light on, turn the TV on, turn the music on as loud as I want, and run around half-dressed. I can do that. If I do that in your home, is that a problem for you? Well, wh wh why are you laughing? You disapprove already. That's that whole, you know, you can get naked and bark at the moon in your own backyard, but don't do it in mine. Right? So in that communal setting, what I'm doing impacts the rights of other people. So in order to maintain order in a safe environment, you can have rules that apply to everybody. If you have food that is locked, I can agree to that. It applies to everybody. And then if I don't need that because it's not in my plan that I require that, then I need to have access to get that food when I want to, 
or to have somebody get it when I ask for it. But it's okay to, in a communal setting, say you don't eat at 3 o'clock in the morning. You can get a snack, but you shouldn't be serving dinner at 3 or breakfast at 3. Makes sense. It's okay in that setting to have a rule that says you're not allowed to have food and drink in your bedroom. Anybody have kids? Anybody have to put that rule in place for their kids? Or is it just me? My son doesn't get hungry until 8.30 at night. And he's this big around. So I don't understand because he eats a lot between 8.30 and 9.30. And then he goes to bed. So he's not burning it off. And then you go in his room and you've got cheese stick wrappers and you've got, you know, a banana peel here. And then you know what? There's no eating in your room. Why? Safe and orderly. So it's okay to have in a residential setting that individuals are not allowed to eat in their room. Because you don't need to have the roaches. You don't need to have the bugs. You don't need to have the health impact of that. But that needs to be agreed upon collectively for everybody, applied equally to everybody. It can't just be, you know what, I'm telling you, you can't do that today. Does that make sense? I have to know that restriction. I have to agree to that in advance. Anybody ever known of somebody who's suspended from services temporarily? Somebody had to be sent home from a program and they're suspended and they can't come back for X number of days? Yeah? In your criteria for services, in your policies, and at the time of admission, they need to understand what they might get suspended for. Because if I have challenging behaviors and I disrupt the milieu and you send me home for three days, does that mean when I come back three magical days later that everything's perfect? No. So you need to have a plan. You need to get the team back together and put things in place to support my return. Otherwise, it's arbitrary and subjective, and you don't want to be in that situation. The rules apply to everybody. At the time of admission, when I'm agreeing to your program and services, I am agreeing to accept your program rules. If I'm already in your services and you're going to change the rules, then you need to include the individuals in reviewing them and get their feedback in them. So if the rules already exist and I'm admitted, I'm already, I'm already in those. But if you're changing them and applying them to everybody, then they should have feedback and input into it. All right. Those rules should be posted. How many of you in your program and services, have program rules posted right now. Okay. They need to be posted in common areas. They need to be available for others to see. All right. Program rules also prohibit peers from disciplining one another. That almost seems like common sense, right? Common sense doesn't exist. Good sense does. Common sense doesn't. Use of seclusion, restraint, and timeout. Does anybody here use that? No? No? You all don't use seclusion. Does anybody here ever take a timeout? I take them all the time. Personal, absolutely. I call mine coffee breaks. But I take them. As an employee here, are you authorized to use restraint? 
Say again. It has to include in a plan and approved. Okay. All right. Are you allowed to use restraint in the case of an emergency? Say again. Only in the case of an emergency. All right. Are there certain restraint techniques you're allowed to use? Yeah. Right now you use CPI and therapeutic options, and you're moving towards streamlining to just one. Right? So I could not come in, be employed by you, and use Handle with Care. Right? I have to follow the policies and procedures that are in place. You all, as mental health, substance abuse, and developmental service professionals for Loudoun County, you only use restraint for emergencies. Everybody has the right to be completely free of unnecessary use of seclusion, restraint, and timeout. It's not for punishment. It's not for convenience of staff. Restraint includes the use for behavioral, medical, or protective purposes. All behavior plans using restraint must be reviewed by the local human rights committee. So not only is a restriction going to the BMC, but a restraint in a plan goes to the BMC and the local human rights committee. It goes through both of those. And you all do not use that right now, correct? Correct. You do? Okay. All right. Okay. A comment about restraint. Kevin wears a helmet because he has a seizure disorder, and he's at risk for falling and smacking his head on something. That is a restraint for protective purposes. It would not be associated with the behavior plan. It would not go to the local human rights committee. Kevin wears a helmet because he engages in self-injurious behavior and has a tendency to hit himself in the head and has caused enough damage and is at risk for concussions that could cause more detriment to him. That restraint is for protective purposes, addressing a behavioral concern, it does go to the local human rights committee. Same type of restraint, protective, but the reason for it is different. Do you see the differences between the two? Okay. How many of you have the right to work? How many of you chose to come to work today? I didn't say chose to come here. You chose to come to work today, right? How many of you, how many of you would have liked to have chosen not to come to work today? That's it. Not much. If you had a choice, right? Why did you choose to come to work? When you don't work, there's a consequence, right? And more often than not, the consequence is right here. That's where it typically is, okay? But you have the right to come to work or not come to work. The individuals we support have the right to work, and therefore they have the right not to work. Now, depending on 
what side of the fence you fall on, that's a controversial statement. Because we have this employment first push, right? Employment first, employment first, employment first. They got to get a job, they got to get a job, they got to get a job. But I have the right to work or not work. So if you say, Kevin, do you want to get a job? And the answer is no, then guess what? That's okay. Preferences, person centered, documented, yet you're still empowering me with other things so I can have a happy and successful life. Does that make sense? Research. Do any of you ever listen to the radio? When you listen to the radio, do you ever hear those commercials about call now and you can be part of this special research group and we will send you this medication which will address smoking or this medication which will address sexual dysfunction or whatever the case would be? Have you ever heard those commercials on the radio? Am I the only one that hears this on the radio? Okay. When you hear those, do you have a choice to call or not call? You do. Nobody makes you sign up and do those things. So it's the same thing with the folks you support. They have the right to be involved in research. They have the right not to be. Now, substitute decision maker. Determination of capacity to give consent or authorization. If capacity of an individual to consent is in doubt, the provider shall obtain an evaluation. Do any of you work with individuals that you question whether they have the capacity to make decisions and consent to treatment, but they do not have a substitute decision maker? Do you have those folks that you support? If you have them, you have doubt, it is your job, your responsibility as the provider to have an evaluation done. If you have the doubt and you don't have the evaluation done, in some way, you might be neglectful. In some way, I don't think you have the capacity to consent to services but I'm signing you into my services, and I'm collecting money for those services. On some levels, that's almost exploitation. So if you question somebody's capacity, you have an obligation professionally and by the regulations to get an evaluation done. Now, by the regulations, the evaluation shall be from, not form, not form, from a professional. The regulations do not dictate what the qualification is for that professional. But if you call, they're going to say it needs to be a psychological evaluation. Now, how many individuals do you support that have psychological evaluations that were done in school and haven't been done since? Anybody have those? Yeah? At the age of 18, I went off to college. At the age of 19, I dropped out of college. And then I continued my great 
succession of decision-making. First of all, I didn't understand you had to attend class to pass. Secondly, I didn't understand that you couldn't stay out till 2 o'clock in the morning and, and, and make it at 8 o'clock in the morning for class. I also didn't understand that Thursday afternoon and Friday classes weren't optional. If you signed up for those, it was me. I, I didn't get those principles. So then I decided I could be a beach bum, which was great. I had a wonderful time on the beaches of North Carolina. However, I didn't necessarily make a bunch of good decisions. So then I realized there was no money in being a beach bum, so I joined the military. And then I had a medical discharge. I ended up in Health and Human Services. My point is, at the age of 18, my decision-making skills weren't necessarily the best. They're a little bit better today, a little bit better. When I went back to college, I understood I actually had to attend and pay. And I paid for it myself, which had a whole other value to it as well, right? That had a whole new meaning. My capacity from the age of 18 to make decisions and my capacity to my mid-40s now is entirely different. It improved on some level. If we have individuals that have intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities, and they have psychological evaluations that were done when they were in school and in their 30s, they could have different skill sets now. Do you agree? That evaluation may not be current, may not be accurate. Now fast forward. I'm in my mid-40s. I still have all four of my grandparents. All four of my grandparents are still married to the same person they married. 94 is the oldest. 90 is the youngest. Unbelievable, right? My wife lost her father already, right? My wife lost her father already. 